as we saw last week in our study, Paul's letter to the Galatians followed the format of what we would call a letter of rebuke. The phrase in verse number six, I am astonished, was a common expression of rebuke that was used in Greek letters in Paul's day. There was a sort of a form letter that was used in which the writer would rebuke the reader for not having met the expectations of the writer. And the expression of rebuke is then followed by reasons for the rebuke. Paul will give several through the course of this letter, but he begins with the fact that they are being disloyal to God. You are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. By the way, letters of rebuke also contain requests on how the reader was supposed to make these things right. That we will see in chapters 4, 5, and 6. As we saw, Paul does not say that they had deserted, but that they were deserting. And he writes to stop them before they go too far. Rather than review the whole sermon from last Sunday, I want to mention several things that stand out to me. First of all, the focus in Paul's letter here is personal and relational. That is to say, Paul does not say that they are abandoning the faith. Rather, they are deserting the one who called you. Uh, John called me this week and mentioned uh, John Peterson's paraphrase, the message, and uh, particularly on Galatians, and I'm grateful to him for pointing this out. Peterson, in his paraphrase, says, I can't believe your fickleness how easily you have turned traitor to him who called you by the grace of Christ by embracing a variant message. It is not a minor variation, you know. It is completely other, an alien message, a no message, a lie about God. Those who are provoking this agitation among you are turning the message of Christ on its head. And I wonder if in reading these verses, verses 6 through 9 of chapter 1, that our focus is off track that we think in terms of heresy or apostasy. And if we do, then our thinking tends to be impersonal. I looked up online definitions for heresy and apostasy. And heresy is seen as an adherence to a religious opinion contrary to church dogma, an opinion or doctrine contrary to church dogma, dissent or deviation from a dominant theory, opinion, or practice, an opinion, doctrine, or practice contrary to the truth or to generally accepted beliefs and standards. Apostasy is defined as the denunciation of one's religion, principles, or cause. And even blasphemy is seen as irreverence toward religion. I think Paul would reject all of these definitions. To Paul, it was all personal and relational. If you see this, I think if somehow you can get a hold of this, it opens up the rest of the letter, and I would say the rest of Paul's writings. Otherwise, we read what Paul has to say, and we think of it primarily, if not exclusively, as theological, philosophical, doctrinal, and abstract, ultimately. As if to prove the point that it is personal and relational, Paul goes on to describe his experience. That is to say, he doesn't simply say to the Galatians, you guys need to get your act together. But he points to himself as one who has lived the way of faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He doesn't call on the Galatians to do something that he himself has not done. The key to understanding Paul 
and his story is his encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw this last week. In writing about this encounter, Paul presents us with three pictures or three snapshots. Paul before his conversion, Paul's conversion, and then Paul after God called him. And then again, rather than review the whole matter, I would just remind you of what Paul said regarding his conversion. After writing about himself prior to conversion, in which it was all about him, we have four first-person verbs. I persecuted the church. I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism. I was extremely zealous. When Paul talks about his conversion, it is all about God. That God set me apart from birth. God called me by his grace. God was pleased to reveal his son in me. And as we saw last week, this points out that God's choice precedes conversion. God's choice leads to his call. His call leads to revelation, and his revelation leads to his commission. And again, for Paul, this is not theoretical. This is not some doctrinal statement he's trying to make. This is what happened in his life. And if we are the people of God, I would say it has happened to us as well. Paul's story continues in verse number 18, and that's where we pick it up today. Remember that the issue, or rather issues, is this. That Paul's apostleship is not from man, and Paul's message, or the gospel, is not from man either. Paul seeks to demonstrate that his apostleship comes from God and the gospel comes from God by telling his story. Already we have seen that after his conversion, Paul did not go to Jerusalem. He went to Arabia and then to Damascus. His story continues here in verse number 18. Follow along if you would as I read. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. So I mentioned last Sunday, it is striking to me that after the encounter on the road to Damascus, in which God called Paul and commissioned him to be the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul disappears for three years. And put disappears in quotation marks. We assume that he was in Arabia, but we're not certain. And it seems that Paul is not concerned to tell his readers about those years. What he does do is give us a timeline. That after three years, he doesn't tell us about these three years, but after three years, he goes up to Jerusalem. And there he went to Jerusalem for a specific purpose, to get acquainted with Peter. Paul is very specific about the timeline, not only the years, three years, but the days, 15 days that he was in Jerusalem. Again, Paul is not as specific as we might want. We might want to know what did they talk about? Why did Paul go to see Peter? I think it actually doesn't take too much imagination to begin to answer these questions. What do you think they talked about? About the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. Paul, who had been confronted by the ascended Christ on the road to Damascus, and who may have been mentored by him for three years, I think that's entirely possible while he's, he was in Arabia, we just don't know. Paul wanted to know more, and to hear it from the disciple who is best known, that is Peter. Uh, by the way, the NIV has a footnote, the ESV does not because it puts what we find in Greek Instead of Peter, we find Cephas, which is the Aramaic name, which also means rock. Why did Paul go to see Peter? Who better to go and meet than to talk 
to about Jesus the Messiah. So he goes up there, he gets acquainted, he's there for 15 days. Um, this would have been a great opportunity to see the other apostles, but he sees no one else except James, the Lord's brother. The other apostles either were not in Jerusalem or they didn't care to meet Paul. Uh, but James was the head of the church in Jerusalem, the Lord's half-brother, and Paul was able to meet him. Paul's point is clear. <coughs> his first encounter with people in Jerusalem was three years after his conversion, and it was quite brief. Then Paul writes something in verse 20 that I find somewhat strange. He says, I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Several things should be clear. Paul must have felt the need to use this legal oath. It's a, a formula that under Roman law, if you wanted to contest something in court, you first had to swear an oath that what you were saying is true and it had to be decided in a court. But I must confess that I was a bit troubled by this because I'm reminded of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount regarding oaths. I think what Jesus was talking about was swearing oaths when in fact you're not telling the truth. You use an oath to cover up the fact that you are telling a lie. You use it to mask your untruthfulness. Paul wants to make it clear that he is telling the truth. What's the big deal? I believe that the false teachers who have gone to Galatia have been telling a different story. And so Paul tells his story and he says, I am telling you this is the truth. Also, what Paul is telling us is not sort of a casual recounting of the story of his life. This is serious business. Because the issue is whether or not Paul got his message from God or from the apostles in Jerusalem, from man. And Paul insists that his contact with Jerusalem was minimal. It was after three years, three years after his conversion, he spent 15 days with Peter. He met James. That's it. From there, Paul moves on. And the issue is not so much where Paul was, but where he was not, and whom he did not know. If you look at verses 21 and 22. Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. All of this is to say that he was not under the authority or the supervision of the church in Jerusalem or Judea. He was in distant provinces, not that distant, about 300 miles away. But they did not know about him. They didn't know about what he was doing. He was not under their supervision. He was unknown to them except what they heard, verse 23 and verse 24. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. This is the only connection between Paul and Jerusalem. It is in the next section that we may face some difficulties. Look, if you would, in chapter 2 now, verse number 1. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. This is Paul's second visit after his conversion to Jerusalem. Paul tells his readers that after 14 years, he makes this second visit. And he went with two other individuals, Barnabas and Titus. The question or the difficulty that may arise is, what was Paul doing for 14 years? 
the three years we really don't know what he was doing and then sort of three years of disappearing and now 14 years that we really well the question is what was he doing you might say well Damon that's easy Paul was preaching because if you look at verse number 23 the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy I'm not so sure Paul mentions that he was in Cilicia and Syria. Cilicia is his home province. Tarsus is in the province of Cilicia. Antioch is in Syria. We'll do some historical background here from Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, we're told about the church in Antioch, Syria. And this is what we read. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. The people in Antioch, the leadership have heard, or in Jerusalem, have heard what's going on in Antioch. That apparently they're preaching not only exclusively to Jews, but to Greeks, to Gentiles as well. And these people are coming to faith in Jesus, the Messiah. And the people in Jerusalem are not quite sure what to make of this. And so they send someone from Cyprus, Barnabas, to go check it out. Uh, by the way, if you look at Acts chapter 11, the beginning of the chapter, Peter has to explain to the people in Jerusalem why he preached the gospel to Cornelius. So this chapter is pivotal as the gospel now is not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. They send Barnabas. Barnabas's real name was Joseph. Um, the apostles gave him the nickname Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. This is found in Acts chapter 4. By the way, when he goes to Antioch, what does he do? He encourages the people there. I love what we are told about Barnabas. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And it is apparent that going there, he has decided to stay and to work among the believers there. Listen to what comes next. This is in Acts chapter 11, verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, that is Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. In my opinion, it is this year of preaching that the people in Jerusalem have heard about with regard to Saul. And that's why they praise God. And you might say, again, why are you, what is the big deal about this? Like the three years in Arabia during which Paul was taught the gospel, we find a period of over one decade in which Paul is back in his hometown in Tarsus. And I believe that it is in this time 
he matures as a believer. And he stays there until God sends Barnabas to get him and to bring him to Antioch. And it is there that Paul becomes involved in the ministry. And he was there for at least a year. Well, some period, or sometime during that year, we read that during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. From Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. And we're told, parenthetically, this happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This is why Paul writes, if you look in Galatians 2, verse 2, I went, that is to Jerusalem, in response to a revelation. It was the prophecy given to Agabus about the coming famine that caused the brothers and sisters in Antioch to gather a collection and send it to Jerusalem through Barnabas and Saul, whom we now know as Paul. Titus went with them. This is why Paul goes to Jerusalem. He does not go to get approval. He doesn't go to find out anything. Humanly speaking, the plan was he was going to go with this gift to take care of those who are in need in Judea. However, we are told in verse number two that while he was in Jerusalem, he set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I think the opportunity was there and God opened the door for Paul to explain to the people in Jerusalem what he was doing in Antioch, preaching the gospel to Gentiles. He goes on to say, but I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. You see, at this point, the apostles cannot influence Paul's gospel. It's too late for that. It's been almost Well, it's been over 15 years since Paul's conversion. Either they accept what Paul is preaching as gospel, or they say it is false. So there's no question of tweaking it. Either what he is saying is correct, or it is incorrect, and it is false. Paul looks to them for confirmation that indeed he was preaching the truth. He tells us this happens at a private meeting of the leadership. So those who are in Galatia causing trouble may not have known about this meeting. They're telling a different narrative, and Paul says, no, this is really what happened. Oh, and by the way, there was a private meeting that these people may not know about. I met privately with the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. The next three verses are notoriously difficult, verses 3, 4, and 5, because they seem out of place. It seems as though... Paul has changed his thought, you know, what he's talking about. He'll come back to it in verse number six. But look at verses three, four, and five. Yet not even Titus, he's one of the companions, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Titus had accompanied Paul and Barnabas. But who is Titus? I found this fascinating. Titus is not mentioned once in the book of Acts. He's mentioned 13 times in the New Testament, 
there is a book written to him, the book of Titus. But of the 13 mentions, nine of them are in 2 Corinthians. Titus was a Greek believer that traveled with Paul, that Paul had taught, and Paul sends him to Corinth in his place. We are, in fact, told more about Titus in this one verse than we are the rest of the New Testament. He's a Christian, he's a Greek, and he was not circumcised. Perhaps he was brought by Paul and Barnabas as evidence to the people in Jerusalem that there are, in fact, Gentile believers who have put their faith in Jesus, and they are just as much followers of Jesus as you are, even though they have not submitted to, to the law. That is, they have not been circumcised. But here we come to the heart of the matter. And I think, in some sense, Paul has sort of jumped the gun. He wants to get to the matter at hand, what these false teachers are telling the people in Galatia. Titus's status comes up because some false brothers, well, if you're a false brother, then you're not a true brother. I mean, there's a real irony here, had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. They are claiming to be followers of Jesus, to be a part of the family of God. They, in fact, have not embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were holding on to the law. But in order to disrupt the followers of Jesus, they had infiltrated. The best way to do damage is not to be on the outside, but to come in and be on the inside and to find out what's going on. What it means to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves this will be fleshed out in chapters 3 and 4. As I said, I think Paul's sort of jumping the gun, but he, he has to say this about Titus, uh, one of the two men who went with him to Jerusalem. But Paul makes it clear, we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. What Paul did in opposing these brothers, he didn't do for his own sake. He's already a Jew. He's already circumcised. This is a non-issue for him. Paul stood up to them for the Gentile believers who would come in the future, who would believe in the gospel as Jesus gave it and as Paul understood it. And they would not submit to what these false teachers were requiring. In verses 6 through 10, Paul gets back to the business of his second visit to Jerusalem. But you might get a sense that he's walking a tightrope. Look, if you would, at verses 6 through 10. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. In verse number six, Paul comes perilously close to disrespecting the apostles. In fact, if you're not careful, you might think he's still talking about those false brothers that he had mentioned previously. But he is not. But remember, Paul's trying to make a point. He did not get his message from man, but from God. And so the status of these individuals, these apostles, 
uh, is really of little significance to the issue here. Because Paul has already said, listen, if an angel from heaven preaches another gospel, let him be eternally condemned. So in a sense, Paul is saying these people, you know, they seem to be people that are important, but only God knows. I mean, people look on the outward appearance. People might bow down to them as the apostles, but, you know, God, God knows what's on their heart. His purpose is not to belittle them, but rather to say his message did not come from them. Verse 7, on the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. The message, the gospel that Paul had been preaching in Antioch for the previous year was the same gospel that these apostles had been preaching. And the apostles, the leadership in Jerusalem, saw that Peter or that Paul had been given the commission of preaching to the Gentiles just as Peter and themselves had been given the commission of preaching to the Jews. Peter is seen as the lead apostle in preaching to the Jews, but it is worth noting that he was the first to preach to the Gentiles, Acts chapter 10, when he preached to Cornelius, that he traveled around the Mediterranean, including visiting the church in Corinth, and that it is said that he was martyred in Rome. Paul is seen as the lead apostle to the Gentiles, although in verse number 8 in Greek the word apostle is not used. Paul had a great burden for his people, the Jews, and his pattern of doing missionary work was to go into a town and go to the synagogue. What do you find in the synagogue? You find Jews. And he preaches first to the Jews, invariably he gets kicked out, and then he preaches to the Gentiles. What is my point? Peter, who is the apostle to the Jews, also preaches to the Gentiles. Paul, who is the apostle to the Gentile, also preaches to the Jews. And the significance of this is they are preaching the same gospel. They don't have like a Jewish gospel that they pull out and a Gentile gospel they pull out depending on the audience. No matter to whom they are preaching, they are preaching the same gospel. While Peter's primary audience was the Jews and Paul's primary audience was the Gentiles, it's not an exclusive audience in either case. They preach the same good news and people become a part of the family of God whether they are Jewish or they are Gentile. In this particular instance, the leadership of the church in Jerusalem recognizes that God is at work in Paul's ministry. It is not primarily or exclusively a matter of theology, although theology and doctrine are important. It is the personal and the relational aspect, God at work in his people. They were able to see that God was at work in Paul's life. In verse number nine, Paul again walks this tightrope when he speaks of those reputed to be pillars of the church. This expression calls to mind the temple with its pillars. And now the church is the new temple of God. And you have these men who are pillars, reputed to be pillars of the church. Here he names names. James, Peter, and John. And these leaders in the church, these pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. There is an agreement 
They are preaching one gospel. They have been given this ministry, the grace given to me, Paul puts it, and each will go to the fields to which they have been sent. One last thing in verse number 10. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The reason that Paul and Barnabas and Titus went to Jerusalem was to bring the collection that had been made in Antioch for those in need in Judea and Jerusalem. It was asked that they would continue to remember the poor in Jerusalem. And they are entirely eager to do this. If you read what Paul writes in 1st and 2nd Corinthians about giving, it is about the collection for those who are in need. Although I must tell you, I've heard my share of sermons that have been preached from these passages somehow trying to coax or wring money out of people for special projects. In fact, what is being said is the people in Jerusalem, they are in need and we are collecting money for them. I've mentioned this before, but when the persecution came, and we saw it in chapter 11 in Acts, the church scattered. But stop and think a minute. Those who left town were those who had the money to leave town. Meaning that those who could not leave are stuck in Jerusalem. They are the poor, and I would say even the elderly. And it is for these people that James, Peter, and John ask, please continue to remember these people. They need your help. And even in Romans 15, Paul talks about this. They have given us the gospel. Do we not have uh, an obligation to help them out financially? So as Paul tells his story, he did not get his message from man. His trips to Jerusalem were not for that that purpose. His first trip, he only went up to meet Peter and to get acquainted. He spent 15 days. His second trip, his message is accepted by the leadership as the gospel. And he did not get his apostleship from man. It is during his second trip to Jerusalem that the other apostles recognize his apostleship and his commission. So everything's fine, right? Everything is fine. No. Not exactly. You may notice that beginning in verse number 11, there's no introduction, there's no background, no lead up, no segue. Suddenly Paul just jumps right in when Peter came to Antioch. I think Paul does this because he knows that the Galatians have been told about Peter in Antioch. But they've been told a different version of the story. So they know about Peter in Antioch. Paul now is going to correct the false story that they have been told. Look, if you would, at verses 11 through 14. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? (coughs) Among the ancient customs, or the customs of the ancient world, that we might find hard to relate to, 
It was the matter of who you ate with. In Christian circles, it's known as table fellowship. In ancient times, eating with someone was a sign of solidarity. Today, when we eat out, we really are not overly concerned with who's at the next table, unless they're on their cell phone or they're talking too loudly. We really, and most of the time, we have no say in who's sitting at the next table. In some restaurants, you may even share a table with other people. And again, you have no say in this matter. And for us, it's just not a big deal. We do not put the social weight on eating with other people that we find in the ancient world. But recall that one of the accusations made against Jesus was that he ate with sinners. This, this was unacceptable. One New Testament scholar has gone as far as to suggest that Jesus was put to death because he ate with the wrong people and in doing so subverted social customs. So, when the church in Antioch, where Jews and Gentiles are going to church together because the message is preached to the Greeks and they believe in large numbers, they would eat together. First, in communion, in remembering the Lord's death, and secondly, in a meal that oftentimes would follow communion. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 11. It was a statement of solidarity. It was saying, we are family. We are brothers and sisters. I may be Jewish and this person may be Gentile, but we are brothers in Christ. Now, we need to recognize that there was a certain problem with this arrangement in that Jews were not used to eating non-kosher food. That is to say, Gentiles ate things that might have been repugnant to the Gentiles. So, eating together with Gentiles was not simply difficult psychologically or emotionally, theologically, but just in terms of the food. I mean, there might be food there that you wouldn't care to eat. Each group would have its own way of cooking. But they ate together. There was a statement made that we are the family of God. And profoundly powerful. When Peter comes to Antioch, and apparently the Galatians know about this trip, he fit right in. He ate with the Jews and the Gentiles. Until some people from Jerusalem came up, and suddenly he got all nervous, and he wouldn't eat with the Gentile believers anymore. He was a hypocrite, and Paul publicly called him on this. By the way, I think that the false brothers, the false teachers who are trying to influence the Galatians, have been telling the story the other way around, that Peter rebuked Paul. And Paul's like, no, I rebuked Peter to his face because what he was doing was wrong. There are two Peters in this story, if you look at it. There's the real Peter and the fake one. The fake one is the hypocrite. The reader should be able to tell which Peter is real and which one is fake. Which Peter is eating with the brothers in Antioch? And which Peter quits eating when the delegation from Jerusalem comes up from Jerusalem? They can't be the same. It's the same person. But we see him acting in two different ways. One of these Peters is acting in accordance with the good news 
that Jesus is the Messiah, that God is creating a new people, one family made up of Jews and Gentiles alike. The other Peter is denying this completely. And so it's not a question of differing opinions. It's a question of how you see the gospel. Peter's problem is that he is inconsistent. We should not be overly surprised at this. We have only to look at ourselves to know that we as human beings are inconsistent. The same man who was frightened by a young maiden after Jesus was arrested is now buffaloed into being a hypocrite and going against what he knows to be right by the appearance of certain people from Jerusalem. But there's more to it than this. Others followed his example. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. So suddenly now you have two meals, Jews over here and Gentiles over here. So that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas would not eat with the Gentiles, but only with the Jews. Paul calls him on it, and he begins by saying, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, and not like a Jew. How is it that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? The Lord willing, next Sunday, we will look at Paul's correction of Peter and what he has to say. I think it's powerful. And again, the Lord willing, next Easter Sunday, next Sunday, we will study these words from chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. What can we take from this passage that we've looked at today? Well, if nothing else, it points to the significance and the importance of the personal and the relational. See, we may think of the Old Testament and even the Gospels as a repository of quaint stories that we can tell children in Sunday school. That if you want a story, go to the Old Testament and go to the Gospels. But if you want theology... If you want dogma, go to the epistles. That's where you'll get the real meat. The rest is sort of fluff. It's it's story time. This is simply not the case. Paul goes to great lengths to tell his story in this epistle. And by the way, I would suggest to you, if you read the other epistles in this light, you see that a story is being told there as well. We just don't think of it in that way. And why don't we? Why is it so attractive for us to say Gospels, Old Testament, for the kids? We'll take certain parts of it, but for the most part, that's for the kids. It's stories. But for us, we'll do the epistles. That's theology. I think we do this in part because if we abandon the personal and the relational aspect, we can separate faith and works. We can allow for a disconnect between between what we believe and put that in quotation marks, because how can you believe it if you don't practice it, but what we believe and what we do. As we said in our prayer of confession today, that oftentimes it's more show than substance. I think it is possible to have orthodox theology, that is belief, and yet to live like an atheist, a practical atheist. That in your actions you live as though God does not exist. And we get to do this if we don't believe in story. 
story, Old Testament, God was different then. He was mean. And then the Gospels, it tells us the stories of Jesus, but he's gone. So now the epistles, this will tell us what we believe. No, the entire scripture, and Paul makes this clear to Timothy, that all scripture is profitable for correction, for instruction in righteousness. I think we, nothing else should embrace Galatians today because Paul tells his story here. We're like, well, when are you going to get to the good stuff? When do you get to the theology, the abstract stuff? No, 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 that's not the way it works. There should not be a disconnect between what we believe and how we live our lives, and certainly not in the life of Paul. And when there was a disconnect in Peter's life, Paul called him on it and said, that's not right. You say this, but you're doing something else. Your story should match what you believe. I told you before that in the second century, in certain parts of the Roman Empire, if somebody came to church and said, I want to be baptized, they said, fine. Uh, and for the next year, the leadership of the church would interview the neighbors and the people that this person knew. And they would ask the neighbors, is this person a Christian? That is, has his life, has her life changed that you know this person lives as a Christian? For us, I think in this age, we don't even know what that means anymore. To be a Christian is what you believe. Now, how about the way that you live? This week should remind us, if we view it correctly, of the place of the personal and the relational. When Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, laid down his life for the sheep, he says, no man takes it from me. He gave his life for his people. It was not some abstract or philosophical act of martyrdom, of self-sacrifice that we are to emulate. Oh, this is how we should live our lives. This is one man giving his life for his people. We who now are known as his brothers and sisters. It isn't theology. There is theology there. But it is about a relationship and it is personal. And if we lose sight of that, I fear we have lost sight of the gospel. That the gospel merely becomes a formula, a series of bullet points that we must adhere to. Check it off. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, you're in. And heresy is when you abandon those points. How about abandoning the people of God? Abandoning a way of life? That blasphemy is seen as that which you say. How about the way you live your life? I would remind you once more of what St. Francis of Assisi said. Preach the gospel everywhere. And if necessary, use words. We are to live out the gospel. That is to be our story. Not simply a bunch of facts or a bunch of bullet points. This is what we believe. We do believe the gospel. And we do have the Apostles' Creed and we have books of theology. But they can't stay there. They have to be lived out in our life, as was the case with Paul. Let's pray together.
Our Father, we thank you for your word and for the example of Paul, from whom we expect great theological depth. And yet what we get is his story. But in telling his story, he is, in fact, teaching us what is right. That the gospel is not to be something isolated from our lives, not something merely in our heads, something to which we say, yes, that's true. But it is to be lived out in our lives. We confess that that's often not the case. But by your grace, your great patience, we struggle to live the gospel. In this coming week, we remember what happened to our Savior. May we remember that he did it voluntarily. He did it for us. He did it that we might become your sons and daughters, your people. It is that a new relationship would develop. We would be reconciled to you. I pray that your spirit would call to mind the things we've looked at today. May we meditate on them in the days to come. We are thankful for the great news about Henry, his health. We thank you for that. We pray for Kathy as she's with her mother and grandmother. We ask that you would give them peace. We ask that your grace and spirit would go with us as we leave this place today. And we pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen. Would you stand please as we sing the doxology together?